Hello, and welcome to Law, the Universe, and Everything. I'm your host, Pacifico Soldati. The show explores topics from law and business to consciousness, spirituality, and everything in between. We feature accomplished leaders across many fields to help you get more out of your life. You can learn more and stay up to date at theluepodcast.com. If you're not familiar with my background, I'm a helper, parent, marketer, attorney outlaw, certified mediator, story brand guide, omnist, yoga teacher, and a former paratrooper and award-winning army chef at the 82nd Airborne Division and U.S. Army Special Operations Command. I'm the founder and CEO of the Soldati Group, a marketing agency helping startups, small businesses, and law firms leverage the power of story to grow their businesses. Law, Universe, and Everything is a production of the Soldati Group. All opinions expressed by the hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of the Soldati Group or guest employers. This podcast is for information and entertainment purposes only, and these discussions do not constitute legal or investment advice. Today's episode is brought to you by Prosperitas, an animated video agency that can help you bring your company's ideas, values, products, and messages to life with the power of engaging videos. Whether you strive to win more customers, engage, or educate your audience, Prosperitas will craft each video to fit your brand and vision. Visit ProsperitasAgency.com today to learn more. That's P-R-O-S-P-E-R-I-T-A-S Agency.com to find out how Prosperitas can create the best videos your company has ever had. My guest today is J. Scott Christensen. Scott is an associate teaching professor of management at the Trulask College of Business, where his interests are focused on the impact of technology on society and geopolitics. Prior to joining the college, Scott was a business owner with decades of experience in video conferencing technology, project management, and information technology. Thanks so much for joining me today, Scott, and welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So to start off, I'd love to know what got you interested in joining academia? It was interesting. I was running my business and I really got good at project management as well as building an information systems company. And so I came in and started teaching as an adjunct and did that for a number of years and really enjoyed it, but found it was tying me down. I had to be here in town. We didn't have as much Zoom Zooming then. And so I actually went in and said, love this job, but I just can't keep it up for what you pay for adjuncts. And uh, they said, wait a second, let's think about this a little bit. Let's see if we could bring you on full time. And so that's how I made that transition. And it's been great. I'm what they call professionally qualified. So I don't have a PhD, but I am I have lots of experience in project management, information systems and analytics and teach those topics. Excellent. And so talk to me a little bit about your journey as like an entrepreneur and business. It was uh, not a, a traditional one. I didn't start out deciding I was going to be a business owner, but I ended up working in a field of technology. It was actually video conferencing in the early 90s, and it was really emerging. It was very exciting. I was working for another college that was implementing some of this to deliver classes remotely so that their teachers didn't have to drive all over the state. And I became an expert in that area, and I started having people reach out to me and say, hey, would you do consulting for us on how to implement our system? And then eventually said, why are you doing just the consulting? Why don't you come install the stuff for us? 
and it basically led to my starting up a business. So I don't didn't actually have a business background prior to starting my business. So I learned a lot along the way, and I was very lucky to be tied into a local business community here that's very helpful. So you would meet somebody and they say, oh, Scott, you need to go talk to and I'll help you with this, or uh, this accountant is really good. And so it was, it took a village to build my company, so to speak. Excellent. That's awesome. Yeah. I remember like an early, I still recall, I think it was like maybe 1992, 93, there was like an old maybe AT&T commercial or something about, you know, I think it was like actually at a payphone maybe and it was like a video payphone and it was like a kid uh, and their mom talking to their dad like across the world or something like on a video conferencing platform he's like away on a business trip and at the time i was just like oh that seems crazy and now it's just it's almost passe i've got a five and seven year old and they're just like oh yeah facetime it's great but it's just like, it's automatic it's fascinating how Fast things have been changing since I grew up without a computer. And then my sister, she doesn't remember not having the internet. She's only seven years younger. Yeah, that's one of the things you have to realize if you ever do start teaching is how much different the world has been for these students. Because my students that I'll have this summer and this fall have never known a time when there wasn't an iPhone. So think about it. They were... Um, probably seven when the iPhone came out and they have never known a world where there wasn't the internet or Wikipedia or YouTube. And I think as professors, we have to think about how do we leverage that stuff? How do we make those resources useful to our students? How do we help guide them to understand what, what to watch and what not to watch in terms of content out there? Oh, totally. Yeah, I think I, I started law school late in life. I was like 32, 33 and I, I remember just being in my first like constitutional law class and we were talking about a lot of the the fallout from like 9-11 and, and the Patriot Act and all of the different laws that were passed in the wake of that sort of just violating different civil liberties and everything. And I'm looking around the room and realizing, oh, wait a minute, I turned 18 a few days before 9-11 and there was a kid who turned 19 in my class in law school. And I was just like, wait, what? And so it was just like, oh my God, these people were two, three, four years old on 9-11, they have no actual visceral understanding of how invincible this country like felt before then and how shattering a moment that was just like breaking that illusion. And so it was, it was very fascinating lens to interact with people on, on both sides of that, like talking about these different laws and, and everything that was passed in the wake of that. It's yeah, it's really fascinating. Yeah, it's yeah, it is. It is amazing. And it's interesting, too. How do you keep cultural references? That's probably the most difficult thing for me, because maybe Harry Potter uh, is our, a cultural reference. I'm going to watch uh, some of the was it Hunger Games. Some of my students have watched. Uh, that's probably old by now uh, as well. But I recommend 80s films to them and they recommend things I've never heard of to me. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I think the thing that's kept me younger than anything, aside from having my own kids, but they don't know they're young enough, like they don't really have their own cultural references yet. Keeping up with Gen Z, the one thing that's really helped is like TikTok, because I've met people in real life that are 21 to 25. And I feel like if I hadn't been on TikTok and ingratiated myself and understood like a lot of the culture that was building I just be like, I don't even know what you're talking about right now. And so it's like, I feel in generations past, there was nothing like that to give adults 
any type of give older people any type of insight into what younger people are doing and so it was just always strange and just oh like what oh screw them like what are you doing you're stupid or whatever and now it's you get to see people living like these full robust lives and actually being vulnerable and authentic and like expressing themselves and creating new language and new customs and you can just there's a nice platform you can just go and see it all because it's completely the information sharing on a level that no other social media platform has done and uh yeah it can keep you hip to like the latest stuff that's going on whether millennials like it or not because there's a lot of stuff they're like wait you're getting rid of side parts or you're getting rid of this and like people get all upset about the laughing crying emoji like being passe or being cap and all that stuff and it's just fascinating to watch in real time like we've never been able to do before yeah, I think so. I don't do as much TikToking, but I watch a lot of YouTube videos. Mm. And I think that's pretty interesting to see college students and what they're producing on YouTube. And I tell some of my colleagues that there's always been this generational, I don't know if I want to say look down, where one generation looks down on the other and, oh, they're not near what uh, we were like and, and how studious we were. And I'm like, were we really all that studious? Do you remember your college days? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I remember getting some D's. I don't know about you all, but uh, <laughs> I remember having some uh, times that didn't work out so well. And then also realizing that other generations may, they're not lazy. They just have different priorities. So they, my generation mm. was like, let's uh, join a hedge fund. Let's get uh, lots of money. The Gordon Gecko style of the 80s and early 90s. And they just have different priorities. It's not that they're not willing to do the work. They were willing to put a lot of work into things like YouTube and TikTok. They may not really want to go sell more widgets, right? Oh, for sure. Yeah, it's always been weird. I yeah, I was born in 83, so I identify more as a zenial since I had the you know analog childhood and digital adolescence and adulthood came of age with the internet. But I look at the ongoing sort of infantilization of millennials. It's like on the, what I guess now is like the other term for zennials now is like geriatric millennial. But even on the younger side, it's like, okay, most of these people are like married or have kids now, or and it's just, these are not teenagers, but it's millennials are just continually referred to as if we're like 15 years old. And it's like, nope, like that's halfway through Gen Z now. We got generation alpha on their tail. And it was always crazy to me too. I, was, I served in the army. I did a tour in Afghanistan, a tour in Niger. And yeah, you just have people shitting on millennials and just, oh, they're lazy and this and that. And it's, who do you think is fighting these wars for you right yep. now? It's yep. just all predominantly millennials from like the back end of Gen X. And so it's, yeah, it's been really fascinating, especially for the terrible hand we were dealt, especially by the boomers that like people would just like relentlessly shit on us as a generation. But I think more than anything, like we've persevered through just absolute nonsense. Yeah, the past, like, what, 20 years of my life, basically all of my adulthood is just, we've been at war, there's just multiple recessions, like, it's just been absolute shit show. Kudos to all the millennials still, you know, yeah. rocking it and well, making my, it through. My uh, generation was known as the slacker generation. We were just wanted to ride our skateboards and smoke weed, and we're not going to amount to anything. We're a bunch of slackers. And so that was uh, the term that was used for my generation. Oh, yeah. It's really but wild think... to see how that there's just like this Gen X erasure kind of thing. So I just forget about them. There's boomers and millennials and everyone's wait, what happened to Gen X? Yeah, it's, uh, I think that one of the things that I've done recently that's really helped me understand my students is that I asked them at the beginning of class, first, what do you think I expect of you? What do you expect of me? So that's interesting to see what they expect of me as their uh, instructor. And then what should I know about your life and uh, what you're doing? 
And some of these folks, they're taking care of grandparents. They're also working full time and they're trying to get mm. through college. I think if people were to listen more to what these younger generations are doing and the burdens they're shouldering, I think uh, we'd have much more appreciation and, and wouldn't be quite as flippant about looking down on previous generations. Oh, I totally agree. So, Scott, I'd love to dig a little bit into the technology side of what you do and hear what are your favorite projects uh, going on in AI and other cutting edge technolo technological developments right now? Well, it's very interesting because I am generally an optimist when it comes to technology. So I think that technology can be that kind of bicycle of the mind and can help us be more creative, have better lives. And one of the things that I'm really looking at is artificial intelligence. And there are some really neat ways that this can be put to good use. I think medicine is going to be one of the big breakthroughs that you and I are both going to benefit from as far as diagnostics. There's already been 50 machine learning algorithms or AI algorithms that have been approved for human use in the United States. And so these may predict different outcomes. They may look at your x-rays and be able to more quickly and more accurately determine if you have some uh, malady or uh, disease. And so I think there's some really optimistic uh, and reasons to be optimistic, I would say, about some of these technologies. But there's also some worrying ones in uh, your area of looking into the law. We know that facial recognition technology we've had, I think, three Americans that have been detained, at least three that I know of, that have been detained, weren't prosecuted, but they were arrested initially, initially based on a facial recognition algorithm that the police were using. And it turned out that they were misidentified. And it turns out that all three of these were African-American men because guess what? The engineers on the West and East Coast trained these AIs on. They trained it on white males like myself. And it's really good if your suspect is a white male, but probably not as good when you apply it to other ethnicities. And so there's some troubling aspects about the way this is being used. So we go back and forth between being really optimistic and really pessimistic sometimes about how these uh, technologies are being used. So how do you think over the next five to 10 years, we can nip some of those problems in the bud? Is it really going to take, uh, say, an external third party watchdog, maybe like a quasi governmental agency, maybe a nonprofit that's, you know, got some government funding or something? What's because obviously we've seen that companies are just not going to do the best job of policing themselves, especially the larger the company is, the harder it is to actually police what any given team is doing. So if you got five, 10,000 employees, and you have five to 10, 20 person AI facial recognition team or something like that, it's, it can be really difficult to monitor what everyone's doing at any given time. So how do you envision the sort of uh, monitoring of that to be. I think we have to have some laws in place. I think we have to have some sort of disclosure. Some people have argued for an FDA for data or for algorithms so that we know when we get rejected from a college application or we get rejected for a loan, that there was an algorithm behind that. And what did that algorithm use as far as its inputs to calculate whether we got that loan or didn't get that loan? And so I think we need, first of all, a lot of transparency. And the other thing is we need to have some disclosure. 
uh, about the technologies that are being used. And we also need to have the ability to opt out. So for example, my university has just adopted the Microsoft 365, which is a cloud-based email application. And there is an AI called Cortana that reads my emails every day. And then the next morning sends me back a report on what it thinks I should do this next day. And that is all a machine learning algorithm. It uses natural language processing to look through and to see that uh, Scott made a commitment to this particular person and then says, would you like to schedule time to make sure you get that done tomorrow? That's an AI that I can't turn off because of the fact that I'm working at um, this particular institution. And uh, a lot of people don't know where that comes from. Why is this, why am I receiving this? How secure is that? So I think that unfortunately these companies aren't going to do quote unquote the right thing unless there's some sort of legislation that goes along with that. Yeah, I've also often wondered if all these companies have a variety of algorithms or AI, either following you around or doing things online that, especially with the other thing that made me think of it was like the proliferation of fake news was that everyone actually should have their own AI, like a personal assistant on steroids. So if you could imagine like Siri or Alexa that could verify whether information you're looking at is true or track how you're being tracked and give you a uh, an, a daily report or like ongoing reporting to be like, oh, hey, you were just flagged by such and such company or agency or this thing is tracking you because it's a you got to fight fire with fire kind of thing. And so if every company is going to be out there using AIs to do something to you or your information, that it's only fair that you have something to fight back against. So it's analogous to we've now got the anti-facial recognition makeup and jewelry, and that's become its own little cottage industry, which is fascinating in and of itself. Yeah, I think there are more and more tools to actually be able to uh, opt out of some of this. I'm trying a I use email a program called Hey, and I've also been trying another search engine called Neva, which is interesting. They're going to actually charge you for a search engine, but they aren't going to make their money by surveilling you. There's another interesting website that your listeners might want to look at. It's called Blacklight, and I think if you just it's produced by a company called The Markup or by a, it's actually a uh, news outlet. And uh, so if you just search for Blacklight and The Markup, you'll find um, this tool and you can basically enter a web address and it'll tell you all the different trackers that are going on. And you may sometimes see hundreds of trackers, not just Google Analytics, but they're tracking you through Facebook. They're tracking you through all these other cookies and, and other methodologies, little hidden pixels that when you load that pixel, it knows that you have loaded that website. And so, yeah, I think enabling tools is always good because I think that increases the awareness of what's really going on. Definitely. So what are you most excited for in terms of tech innovation, say, over the next decade? Really excited about some of the ways that technologies such as open source hardware, Internet of Things, is lowering the barriers to entry for new entrepreneurs. So one of the things that we talk about in business is barriers to entry. Can I enter this industry? For example, if you were to, if we were just reminiscing about the past, let's go back to the uh, 80s here, our 90s, and I wanted to have a show uh, that would appear regularly and would be available worldwide. Would I be able to do that? No, I'm not going to have 
the type of money it's going to require to break into that industry, the broadcast industry. But you get a guy that's got some ambition like yourself, and he's got a microphone, and he's got some way to edit some video. Now you have ability to broadcast worldwide. And so think about how those barriers to entry have been reduced for something like podcasting and the opportunities it creates. Well, uh, same sort of thing for this open source world where you have hardware and software that you can easily create your new widget and try it out or get Kickstarter funding. And you can do this all from anywhere in the world. And so I, I'm really excited about it. I tell my students that I think this is a great time to actually be looking at starting a business or innovating a new product. I just think it's, it's a time of turmoil to be sure, but that's the time that you often have great ideas rise to the surface. Yeah, I definitely think for all the carnage that's obviously been wrought over the last year, there's been a lot of interesting opportunities and even going around now, and I live in Phoenix, and so there's tons of storefronts that are shut down, but you just kind of know, okay, in the next six to 12 months, probably 50 to 75% of these are going to be replaced by something else. There'll be a lot of innovation, a lot of new ways of doing business. I think the more we can further financially incentivize and assist millennials and Gen Z to get into the entrepreneurial space and start small businesses, we're going to see a lot cooler stuff arise. And it's really going to, I think, be pretty transformative in terms of what we see. We're just walking around Main Street. You I agree 100%. And uh, I think that it's just amazing what you can do. It's amazing what you can learn. Just think about platforms like YouTube that we we're just talking about, where you can go online and somebody can instruct you, well, here's how you create a podcast. Here's how you do this type of data analytics. So this idea of just-in-time learning, I'm a big advocate of. Unfortunately, our higher education institutions are lagging a little bit. I'm hoping that this pandemic has been a little bit of a kick in the ass for some uh, institutions and some of my colleagues to start looking at ways that we can deliver value, not just when you're sitting in a bill. So how can we de deliver value after you graduate, before you graduate, or even people that have never enrolled in our institution? How can we be de delivering value when they need it in their jobs? And I just think there's some fantastic things going on with the people that are teaching on YouTube. There's one professor that I recommend on statistics, and I actually send this out to my students and say, hey, if you need help with statistics, this is the guy to watch because he will explain all these concepts with great graphics. He's probably one of the best teachers in stat statistics I've ever seen. And I think uh, there's some of that material that is very amenable to these types of formats, and we really need to be looking into it more and more too. So I think that's another reason why I'm so optimistic, is not only do you have these barriers to entry lowering, you also have this kind of turbocharging of our ability to learn. So you don't have to go to an institution of higher education to learn how to program in Python, or you don't have to go to a library. You can just get online right now, go to code.org or some other nonprofit website, and you can get started today. Yeah, it's really interesting. I think we're really in the beginning stages of the fall of credentialism. I know that, of course, lawyers and 
doctors will keep a stranglehold on <laughs> the credentialing and licensing and all of that. I think doctors, it's more justified than lawyers. It is. I think the bar exam is something that's pretty outdated in that regard. Why does the ABA credit law schools if you're not good enough to just be a lawyer once you graduate? It seems right. silly that there's like this sort of double, double trap there that's, oh, no, you got to fight to get into law school and graduate. And then now we're going to put you through this sort of exam that has absolutely nothing to do with the practice of law. And so I'm really excited to see in most other fields that there is this sort of, okay, credentialing is bullshit. And you're seeing more and more employers say, okay, we're not going to require a bachelor's degree or we're not going to require this or that degree. And I think that's actually eventually just going to destroy MBAs because mm -hmm. I've learned more, you know, love my professors in my MBA program. They're fantastic. But at the same time, I've learned more about business like from a practical standpoint and a tactical standpoint, six to nine months of TikTok than I did all throughout business school. So much of it is theoretical or so much of it is like a little outdated or removed from how businesses operate today. And it might be about operating a brick and mortar business when it's okay, but how do you do this online? Or how do you, how do you do tactical marketing? Not just like some theoretical marketing concepts and stuff. And so now that there is like this mass democratization of information through places like YouTube and TikTok, you can get things in little, you can learn things in as little as 15 seconds or 60 minutes. And it's just packed full of so much more information. It's it's incredible. There's a interesting platform that I've been checking out. I haven't produced anything on it yet. It's called, uh, I think it's pronounced Arist. It's A-R-I-S-T. And it's a group of five uh, young people that have come up with this way to offer courses via text message or WhatsApp message. And so the idea is that you drip this out every day. So rather than Let's say that you join some new law firm and they're going to onboard you and we're going to have a half a day and we're going to just throw everything at you about how things work here at the law firm. You're probably going to be nervous. You're going to remember some of it and uh, you kind of probably be thinking about other stuff during the training. What if instead they just oriented you to where's the bathrooms and here's your office and said, okay, every day you're going to receive a text message and then the first week is going to tell you about our benefits package and how to sign up for that. And the next week is going to be the history of the company and the next is going to be this, that. That's what this platform was really originally designed for, was onboarding new employees. But I think there's lots of other ways that we could incorporate that into our courses. So why don't we have a one-day intensive workshop with Scott about business processes and technologies. And then for the next two months, you're going to have some sort of feed that's going to add into, maybe you sign up for a customized feed every day based on what you're doing or your profession or what internship you're doing. And then we come back again in, uh, and talk about our experiences in a, in a couple months. And what higher education has to do is they have to get to the point where they can recognize the value of that. And it's uh, interesting, I'm talking with some of my uh, colleagues and we've agreed that there's there's only certain institutions that are going to be able to adapt just because of culture and money and other things like that. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting because I know where I've gone to school and several other schools, like the MBA programs of decreased enrollment anywhere from like 25 to 50% because there's just you know, obviously like COVID had its own impact on things. But at the same time, it's just like you look around and it's okay, what's the actual value of this investment? Now, of course, if you had 50 grand or 100 grand to go out and start your own business or develop your network in some way, like you could certainly get a lot more done 
in that regard than most MBA programs. But of course, the government doesn't isn't giving out student loans for you to go start a business or for you to just build your network or something. So there's certainly like still value in hijacking the student loan system to to get a Harvard MBA or, or whatever it's going to be. But it's fascinating to see. I think that sort of MBA programs right now are the canary in the coal mine for academia writ large, because mm. more and more people are getting turned off. And you go on you go on TikTok and there's just so many people ranting about how terrible like our education systems are and how it's it really hasn't been in the K through 12 space really has not been updated in over 100 years. Everything was arranged around just industrial factory type education for you to go work in a factory or some type of industry and be seen and not heard, show up on time, respond to bells, respond to different yeah. types of authority. And so everything is sort of more competitive. We haven't built up like a robust, collaborative educational infrastructure in this country, which I think it'd be tremendous. The people I love most when I'm networking now are the people that are all about what can they give first, right? Like how can you help people and how can you turn business into a collaborative team sport versus a competitive sport? And I think the people that are still just trying to compete and crush someone else, like those are the people in the long run that are going to really fall by the wayside. Because like you'd said, when you started your own business, you had no business background whatsoever and it takes a village and and i think it it does for everyone now obviously a lot of people want to pretend they're rugged individualists that they're oh they built themselves up by their you know bootstraps and all that kind of stuff and it's just like it's mostly nonsense and just a myth and you don't get anywhere without other people and you can go a lot farther with other people and so i think that's what people are seeing like our education system is not preparing people for and if you don't need credentials anymore, you don't need, you can what, you can go get a Shopify free trial right now. You can pay then like nine bucks a month and start your own e-commerce store. You can start an Etsy store. You can do all these different kinds of things. You can get on TikTok, which is totally free. And as long as you have a personality and can engage on video, you can have thousands and thousands of followers within a few weeks. Mm -hmm. You can hit a million followers in a month if you've got the right blend of, you know, talent and charisma and something to say that people like to hear. And so that's never been available before, but it, it's just further democratizing access to wealth. You look at like a hundred years ago, 80% of wealth or so was, uh, was inherited. And now it's basically about 80%, 70, 80% is through entrepreneurship. And obviously that's also concentrated wealth in a very kind of crazy way, but it's still democratized access to it. Whereas nobody was getting Andrew Carnegie money back right. 100 years ago besides Andrew Carnegie and his family. And now that's accessible to just random people off the street, not just having a good idea, or in some cases, stealing a good idea and, <laughs> and then making something of it. I think it's a really tremendous time to be born into this society where the sort of sky's the limit. It's all in what you can be creative to think up and transform right. for yourself. And if you can see yourself through the sort of dark nights of the soul and the frustrating parts of entrepreneurship and stuff, it's like there's literally nothing that can, uh, you know, hold you back from gaining access to that wealth if you really set your mind to it and can build those opportunities for yourself. Now, there's certainly a ton of systemic issues that need to be resolved, both in terms of race and income inequality across a variety of demographics. And we can certainly do things to improve that, whether it's UBI or reparations or, or a lot of other things, but it's never been a better time to be able to build a business and build something for yourself and sort of 
go against the grain of what society always says. It's like, we were raised by boomers. Mm -hmm. They were like, oh, go to college and do X, Y, and Z. But it's, oh, wait a minute. You worked your way through college. Like you just worked a summer job and that paid for your entire college education. And I graduated with $100,000 in student loans. And it's right. like, when you're an 18 year old kid, that's effectively monopoly money. I remember being a freshman in college. And I was like, okay, they're not really going to want this back. They're not going to make, I was like, you have no idea. You're just a stupid kid. And you get into things because you're just, you were taught by a generation that all went to largely went to college and that's who's putting their kids into college. And they might've been the first ones to go to college in their families. And so it was like a really big deal. And so they just push you into the same thing. And it's interesting now because I look at my kids being five and seven and I have no idea what high school is going to look like in 10 years. And and I don't even think it's an, even high school. I don't even think it's going to be that necessary because most of what I did in high school was pretty useless in terms of building actual life skills and things you would use later on. Loved my teachers. There was a lot of really rewarding experiences and stuff, but so much of what we learned is so incredibly outdated that it's like, okay, is there ways that we can just have kids learning things online? Or even in the last year, mm -hmm. it's been incredible to me where there was this real drive to like essentially mimic the in-person experience school over Zoom when over the last over the last 10 years or so the cottage industry of homeschooling apps and resources for homeschooling have just exploded and to me as when I was a kid like kids who were homeschooled were total weirdos right everyone was like oh what are you doing and they they lack social skills and stuff like that and now it's there's everything there's a whole ecosystem around it where they get integrated into brick and mortar school sports activities and then they have these really sophisticated online learning apps that make things really simple and that they can get stuff done in two or three hours that takes a regular school seven hours to get across and so to me i was like why aren't we leveraging all of that why are we trying to pretend that we're still in person it was mm -hmm. just a, a really silly kind of year to me and watching people trying to enforce a five-year-old or a seven-year-old to stay in zoom for seven hours oh yeah 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 i agree with the you know about everything that you've said there and i think that our challenge is how do we incorporate those experiences and help students uh, and guide them with those experiences. We have a really neat uh, program here for entrepreneurs, our students. I was lucky enough to be one of the judges to hear their pitches, and we were able to give about $20,000 away to these new entrepreneurs. But what we also did with several of them is we paired them up with mentors because we knew that, yeah, they're going out there, they're having sales or they're building their business, but they also could benefit. It would be a way for them to cut the line and not have to uh, go through the school of hard knocks that we all did with certain aspects of how do you hire people? Well, just hire your friends, okay? There's, there's, that may work and it may not. And you need to think carefully about your first hires in a startup. And how do you deal with the intellectual property issues? Should you be protecting them or not? Don't just assume that uh, you have to have a patent. Maybe that's not a good idea for you. Maybe you're gonna spend two years getting that patent and you would be better off spending two years just hustling and, and making sales. And so I think, yeah, there's a lot of what you said. I, I agree that we need to figure out a way to help students because they're going to be the ones that are going to have to figure out things like climate change and income inequality. And what we need to do is empower them to work the levers of change. And so I think that you're right. And I would just add that how do we bring that kind of project-based learning, whether it is you're doing a project to help save some piece of land or where you're trying to build a new business or whatever it is, help some, some folks in your community that are disadvantaged in some way.
how do we take those projects and make them into something that we do credential, right? Because that's real work and it should be rewarded in that way. But how do we also help with some mentoring there? And that's not just to insert a bunch of dogma, but to help these people make the connections they need and then to also understand uh, what it's going to take. And so sometimes you have to realize I'm not going to be the person that can do this. So how do you delegate that? How do you get someone else to do that part uh, of the work that has to be done? So I think, yeah, I'm on board 100%. I think we have to make that investment in education, though. And one of the, the problems that I face is I really try hard to be a great teacher. But when you have 600 students in an auditorium, you can only go so far. So if yeah. I had 20 students, I could do a hell of a lot better. So there's some uh, compromises there that we're making in terms of quality and revenue. And that's just a, a fact of life, at, at least right now. So, Oh, definitely. So, Scott, I'd love to know, how has a failure or parent failure set you up for a later success? And do you have a favorite failure? I have a favorite failure. Oh, my goodness. I could probably write a book about failures. But, yeah, I think that trying something. One of the bigger failures was I ran for political office once, ran as a Democrat in a year that was not good for Democrats here in Missouri. And uh, normally, at least at that point in my life, I that was in my 40s and I had gotten to the point where if I work hard at something, I usually achieve it and came very close, lost by less than 1%. But it was it was something where I really learned a lot. I stretched myself in some big ways. And so I always believe in this mantra that I know Scott Adams, the guy who did Dilbert or does Dilbert, has talked about, is that projects are only valuable, not so much whether they succeed or fail, but whether you learn something new. So I'm actually trying to do some more work with my YouTube channel and I am learning a lot. And so I'm gathering great capabilities. Now, what well, is my new relaunched YouTube channel going to be super successful? Maybe not. But the great thing is I'm learning, right? I'm learning about video editing. I'm learning about how to tell a story, at least in the short form. And that's probably going to benefit my students a lot as well. So it's going to benefit me in other ways. So I always say you have to always be learning. So that's my main criteria. When I look back at the failures, the ones that have been good have been ones where I learned a lot. I stretched myself. I learned how to do public speaking. I learned how to actually do stump speaking. So jumping up on a stump or the back of a wagon and uh, giving a speech off the cuff. And uh, that was something I had not done before. And I'm relatively introverted. So that was a big challenge. I look back on that and say, boy, I lost. That was a, a quote unquote failure, but I came out of it with so many new skills. Fascinating. So what are one to three books that have greatly influenced your life? Oh, as far as productivity goes, getting things done by David Allen has probably been the thing that really changed my life from going from being busy and stressful to just being busy. I'm, I'm fairly busy right now, and I've got lots of different uh, irons in the fire, so to speak. And I think that one has was really influential in helping me get control of that and uh, lead a relatively stress-free life, even though um, uh, very busy. 
boy, there's so many other great books. Uh, we actually just had our book club this morning. We have a little book club going at the college. I'm trying to think about Change My Life. There's some other ones I'd recommend that are fun. Neil Stevenson is a science fiction author, and he's, of course, written things like Cryptonomicron, but he also wrote one with another author called Dodo, which is uh, a fun one, and it's actually really good if you are listening to things on tape. I think that's a really good. Also, Tim Ferriss had that original book, The 4-Hour Workweek, and that is one that helped me decide, okay, here are some things I'm not good at. How can I delegate some of this stuff? So I'd say those have been influential books, or and, and Dodo is definitely a fun one, but yeah. Very cool. If you could have a gigantic billboard anywhere with anything on it, what would it say and why? Read more. <laughs> That's a good one. Haven't gotten that yet. It's, it, reading is like compound interest. Okay. So if you like compound totally interest agree. when it's working in your bank account, you'll love reading more. Oh, definitely. So are there any quotes that you think of often or that you live your life? Sometimes I was thinking the other day, uh, somebody asked me, who was your role model? And sometimes I think it was Doctor Who because I jumped <laughs> from one thing to another, one one adventure from another. So I don't know that I would have a uh, quote per se that I live my uh, life by. The Boy Scout uh, motto and the Boy Scout law and oath, do a good turn daily. Those types of things I, I think about fairly often. And sometimes I'm walking by something, I'm like, oh... I could go over there and help that person, but I got, I'm got i busy or I'm, I could go pick up that piece of trash or help this person lift something in their truck. And then I'm rem reminded of, oh, do a good turn daily. I can at least go over there and maybe it'll be uh, suck up my time, but I can at least say I've done my good turn for the day. Very cool. So what is one of the best or most worthwhile investments you've ever made? And feel free to interpret the word investments as broadly as investing in relationships. And that's something that is, once again, like compound interest and pays off. So my relationship with my wife, with my family, I think when you're in your 20s, you don't understand sometimes where to place your time. I sometimes talk to my students about the fact that you need to figure out who you're going to disappoint. So if there's an all there's a company meeting that's going to happen, companies decide we're going to get together on Saturday morning, or you could go to your kid's soccer game. Who do you want to disappoint? And when you're in your 20s, sometimes you think, oh, I got to go to the company thing. Are you going to remember the company thing? No, you're going to remember the soccer game. Okay, so I think about that more often. For example, I'm trying to uh, work into my fall schedule a couple trips with my wife. She really likes to go camping. It's a royal, I don't know if I want to say a royal pain, but it is. I have to schedule, I have to get things done in advance, I have to do all this work to not be there. But am I going to remember all that work? No, I'm not going to remember the work. I'm going to remember the fantastic camping trip. Nice. And maybe my students will be a little disappointed I'm not there that week. I highly doubt it. <laughs> but, <laughs> but maybe I'll disappoint somebody by not being in a meeting or not being there to vote on something. But I don't want to disappoint my wife. Oh, that's great. So in the last five years, what new belief, behavior, or habit has most improved? I have really tried to use time blocking. This is talked about in Carl Newport's Deep Work and some other books where you try to really block out your time and, and turn off email, turn off all the other distractions and say, this is what I'm doing during these two hours. And if I can get more done, I can get a lot higher quality work done in that time if I block it. And so uh, that's also helped me. I've had to re-engage with that over the over time because you're going to fall back into your old habits. And I'm always very much an optimist. So I'm going to get at least 
500 hours worth of work done this weekend. It's not going to happen. But when I time block it and really look at, okay, is it realistic? I can mow the lawn in 15 uh, minutes here. No, it's going to take two hours. Let's block that off. It helps me say no to other things. So it helps me be more realistic. So time blocking uh, is something I'm uh, learning and something that has, uh, when I have been good at it, has really paid off. Fantastic. Yeah, I've, I've always uh, long been you know, resistant to scheduling and calendaring and stuff. And once I started my own agency, it was like, I started to become like, okay, I should probably do this. And then I, there was absolutely no way I could survive podcasting without it. Cause it's just, you, know, you start booking more and more people and it's just, oh man, this is like spiraling out of control, but the, the calendar just keeps you grounded and stuff. And so even when I have a day where, you know, doing like four or five episodes back to back or something, at least I've got that calendar. I know what my day is going to look like and gives you that structure you can be successful with. Yeah. I agree. Scott, this has been an awesome conversation, so much enlightening things we've discussed. And I feel like uh, we could talk for hours about technology and AI and a lot of the other exciting stuff going on in the world. So I'd definitely love to have you back. But that does bring me to my final question of the day. And that is, what is the kindest thing anyone has ever done for you? Oh, I, I that's, that's difficult. I've been very lucky. I've been very blessed in my life to have uh, a lot of people that cared about me and my both of my parents as well as my wife. And I think that it would be really hard for me to answer that question. So I, there would be too many examples. So um, I'm going to have to pass on that one. I'm sorry. Oh, no, it's all it's all good. It happens. So I've been fortunate to talk to a lot of equally blessed people. So it's fantastic. Again, thank you so much for joining me today, Scott. It's been an absolute pleasure getting to speak with you. Oh, thank you very much. Good luck. Well, thank you. Today's episode was brought to you by Prosperitas, making unforgettable videos for unforgettable companies. Visit prosperitasagency.com today to learn more. Thank you so much to all of our listeners for tuning in to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you found us so that others can find it as well. And follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at the LUE Podcast or visit our website at theluepodcast.com. And if you'd like to support this show even further, I'd love to invite you to become a patron of the show. For as little as $5 per month, you can help us continue to produce high-quality shows with amazing guests like you heard today. To become a patron, please visit patreon.com slash theluepodcast. We look forward to having you tune in next time for the next episode of Law, the Universe, and Everything. I'm Pacifico Soldati, Wishing you peace, love, and awesomeness. Yes.